Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the TLS podcast with me, Alex Clark, Lucy Dallas, Toby Lishtig, Lise Toussaint and Sana Safi. And later we will be joined by the legendary documentary maker, Norma Percy, who is who is rolling her eyes at the word legendary, but nobody else is. Everybody else knows that, that I speak the truth. Lucy, can you give us a, a wider introduction? Yes, of course. Well, here we are at Hay Live, which never happens. And um, you've been doing events already, haven't you, Alex? Who have you spoken to? Well, I mean, they really, they really have me down as a kind of fantastic celebrity wrangler, which I am delighted with. So I've been talking to Alan Titchmarsh. Wonderful. To the actor Mini Driver. Very, very exciting. Particularly for me, I live in Ireland and uh, I live very near where Circle of Friends was filmed and I'm a frequent visitor to the Circle of Friends cafe. And then yesterday I was talking to the BBC repair shop's Jay Blades. And I have to say, I've never had so much recognition from my own family, who now clearly think that I do have a job (laughs) that they may think is perhaps quite interesting because I got to meet Jay Blades, who was terrific, but I fear has not converted me into a good DIYer. I think I would still just hammer my thumb quite a lot. Excuse me, excuse (laughs) me, son and I are feeling a little bit of pressure. Because of you know, we just simply cannot meet that stand. I mean, I think we're quite busy. I think we should we should leave now. Okay, w- would you mind? And we'll yes, see if Jay Blades okay. is still Norma here. Norma Percy's we'll here. Norma Percy's here. <laughs> Au contraire, Lise, when you agreed, because you're very busy here, and when you agreed to to join us, we were absolutely thrilled. And then Sana appeared as a gift from heaven. Lucy, you've been. I'm. I'm just been this. hanging around, and and uh, Toby's been doing a couple of events as well. Yes, you? no DIY for me, but I did speak to Howard Jacobson uh, yesterday about his wonderful new memoir, Mother's Boy, which I massively recommend, and also Tessa Hadley about her wonderful new novel, Free Love, which is set in 1967 and is about marital infidelity and betrayal and freedom. Also brilliant. 
And Toby, how did you manage to coax Howard out of his shell? Out of his shell. <laughs> Famously reticent man. Yes, there were there were long pauses. You know, he had to fumble around trying to search for the word. No, my my job there was to sort of steer steer him back towards his book and away from the jokes. But he was he. I mean, I suppose a different version of your your Jay Blades talk. He had his audience in the palm of, of his hand. It was extraordinary, actually. Yeah. He really did. It was like an hour of stand-up, yeah. almost. It was brilliant. And I hope that we'll, we'll be able to put that out um, with the TLS as well. Um, but for now, let's stop talking about what we've been doing and talk to our exactly. guests. So we are thrilled and delighted to have with us Lise Doucette, the BBC's chief international correspondent, whose reporting from many of the world's most troubled regions over the past few years has been... I'm sure you'll agree, of untold value and importance. She tells us what's going on, as it's going on, often when it seems difficult or even impossible to know from outside. And somehow, she still seems to manage to be better read than most of us. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how that's possible. Um, we're also very lucky to be joined by Sana Safi, who is senior presenter at BBC Pashto and a bilingual reporter for the wider BBC, who's just made a documentary about her life um, which I think, son, it tells the story of how your own life has been intertwined with the fate of Afghanistan. Absolutely. It's called Afghanistan and Me. And we made the documentary, we, the producer and I made the documentary, um, just before uh, the August 15 the developments or the Taliban takeover of August 15. Initially, the idea was to have something for the 20th uh, anniversary of the US involvement in Afghanistan, but then... We didn't know that the country would fall to the hands of the Taliban, um, but it was timely. So, yes, it's the history of Afghanistan through the stories of what happened to me and my family and how I managed to grow up, stay alive, um, and eventually come to the UK and work for the BBC. Mm -hmm. Well, we are talking about stories from Afghanistan um, to begin with because um, we're going to talk about this this book. Lise, you've written an impassioned introduction um, for a book which was published earlier this year called My Pen is the Wing of a Bird. And it's a very special and very powerful collection of short fiction. Can you, can you tell us about it? Yes. First of all, welcome to all of you. You have a lot of choice in where you want to go on this bright sunny morning here at the Hay and Y Festival. And we're really, we're really, really flattered and honoured that you chose to spend some time with us. And also really touched that you've decided to look at this book. And let me begin by saying this is a book that's going to tell you stories about Afghanistan that you may not have heard before. Stories that will bring moments and images and colors into your life that are part of your life, making a cup of tea in the kitchen, being with your family, cherishing your children. But in doing that, they will also bring you into times and places that you may recoil from because they are very dark, very grim, very troubling stories as well. But this is all about women being able to tell their own stories in their own languages, in this case, the two national languages of Afghanistan, Dari and Pashtu, although there are other languages, like Uzbek, and, and being translated for all of us so that we too can enter into the lives of Afghan men and women in a way that the kind of broadcasting I do as a news correspondent, you cannot do. Afghanistan is a story, is a, is a country, you will know it perhaps, how many of you 
follow what's happening in Afghanistan. You can't, we, we, our podcast listeners want to see, we want to see a show of hands. How many of you follow what's happening in Afghanistan? That is a very yes. healthy show yes. of hands, yes. isn't a it? Yes, a very, very healthy show of hands. But Afghanistan is not just a country which has sadly lurched from one war to the next, and Sana's documentary tells you about some of those wars. It's also a country of poets and writers and gardeners. And we, it's a country of proverbs. We were saying earlier, Afghans have so many proverbs for everything that we sometimes accuse them of making up proverbs. But there is one which they say that Afghans believe God knows what's better for humans than humans themselves know. And there we were sitting at a table when we first met this morning. And I was saying one of the most wonderful things about literature and about journalism in our time is that people themselves can tell their own stories. They don't need people like me, a correspondent from far away to come and tell their stories. And just as I was saying that, that Afghan women can tell their own story, Sana Safi appeared. And I thought, yes, Allah Karim, God is kind. Why should I, Lise Doucette, as a Canadian BBC broadcaster, tell you about Afghan women when Sana Safi can do it? So I hand you this book, Sana Safi, and you can tell them. And essentially, there we were having a coffee and we said, I'm on our podcast. And you said you would. It is an initiative called untold with Lucy Hanna as the editor and she took it upon herself to say these are stories these are fictional stories but they are drawn from the real lives of Afghan women and these women want to be celebrated as writers not as victims or as women in an oppressive society sadly a society with a a lot of misogyny but hey there's a lot of misogyny in a lot of societies right Okay, people listening to this podcast won't see the expressions on the women's face in this audience. But let me tell you, there's a lot of agreement with this. Do you want to to say how how these women writers were found, how these stories were found? Do you want to hear? Sana's here. Yes. No, um, I just wanted to say that the the book is great. And Lucy Hanna got in touch with me when she was looking for translators. And uh, I introduced them to a couple of my colleagues. And some of the stories are translated by them. Um, So it's a fantastic book. But I, I would like to say that... Yes, Afghan women are able to tell their own stories, but they also need Liz Doucette and Lucy and everyone else. Because I think um, some of them would tell you themselves that our problems are so many that we need every little help we can get. And you Especially need amplification, now. don't you? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's what's needed. Somebody to say, okay, listen here. Absolutely. And so what they want is not to be looked down upon, not to be treated as victims, as Lee said, but treated as partners where they're able to tell their own stories, contribute to a world that is richer, inclusive and respectful. Um, so that and, and thanks to Lise, because you were there in 1989 and my documentary starts from 1989. Um, so Lise was there telling the stories of Afghanistan and I was born that year. And it, when I was making it, I, was, I couldn't help think, but like, we've got a legend in the organization. So thank you for everything you have done and for what you continue to do. It's, it's an interesting point about, the, about them not being, uh, the women not being seen as victims. It struck me when I was reading it, there is a lot about the daily lives and the hardships and often uh, tragedies that the, the women are facing, though often they triumph over them as well. But it's not a book about the plight of Afghan women, mm. is it? It's a book about 
people um, casting light on, on particular writers, I should say, casting light on particular details, like um, the beautiful pair of, of red, boots red boots that the girl sees. The ruby the ring, the ruby yeah. ring. The ruby ring. Or the, the journalist the, who goes to work. The, the yeah. TV yeah. journalist yes, who reads exactly. the news, like you. Puts on her makeup yeah. as the rockets are falling and the everyday, lives of everyday kind of, of courage. Yeah, we're, we're zeroing in there on something, isn't it? That you can marshal facts, you can find people. You need always a detail, a an story. image, a yes, story. A story. And you as journalists are storytellers as well as recorders and, you know, day-to-day -day sort of documentarians. Lisa, Lisa uh, you um, referred to, to you as sort of grabbing the first draft of history, which then perhaps becomes something even more detailed later on. So what are you looking for, both of you, when you're, when you're trying to find a story that will really stay with people? I think I personally have a, a tendency to go for the most humanist of um, thing. It could be really small. It could be nothing in the eyes of, um, I think, the audience. But how do you just get a really simple object or thing and make it connected to the wider world? Um, somebody was recently asking me about what would you, how would you start your own book if you were to write uh, my story? And I would say I would start with, the line that it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes it took the world to raise me, and then I will expand it. And and so that's how I look at things. It's you know the most simplest of things, and then you expand it and connect it to the wider world, and how we all see ourselves and we find our own places. And these stories, um, Afghanistan has been at war for forty five years. And when people in the West think about it, they obviously think, well, oppressed women, you know, wife beaters, some primitive um, uh, people from that part of the world. But it's not just the war that is the Afghan reality. There is life. People get up in the morning, they, they shower, they go to work, they, they have weddings, they have funerals, they have work just, just like us. They go to the hairdressers, they put on red lipstick. So it's all about that in this book. And I think that's what sometimes we miss as journalists because we are all about... When it's the stories of war, we're all about how many are dead and how many are you know, injured and where is destroyed and how. But we, don't, we sometimes miss the little details that are in I this think, book. Because I think sometimes uh, journalism is at once about the great sweeping movements of history, whether they're of our society, like the Ukraine war now, it's not just a war about Ukraine, but about uh, a whole a, a global uh, a conflict which is affecting the, the, whole, the whole world. It's about a great sweep, but it's also about the very little details. Family to family, street to street, town to village to city and I often say that when you every conflict you look at no matter how complex or consequential when you drill down to the essence of this conflict what is it at its heart it is a story about fathers and mothers and children and homes and streets and societies because in our times and in looking at because today we're looking at conflicts of our time, that there, these conflicts are no longer fought in the trenches. They are fought street to street. And as we've seen in Ukraine, they are fought from one high-rise residential block to another across the cities and towns of Ukraine. So we are talking about human lives. And when we will hear from Norma Percy, the human lives is also about the leaders and about what drives them. These are 
human stories. They are stories that all of us can recognize. And the stories that may seem so far away from us geographically, socially, politically, psychologically, are actually stories which are very close to our own hearts and homes. And that is what you know, the job of Sanans and myself and all of us here in the different ways we play in our world is how to basically to reduce, to diminish those gaps in human understanding. Because Look at the last three major crises that we are still reeling from. The global pandemic, our climate crisis, the Ukraine war. None of those crises stopped at borders. These were truly global crises. The Ukraine one has reached into all of our homes. Every time you go shopping now and buy sunflower oil or wheat, you will think about the war in Ukraine from the bread basket from Ukraine, which produces 13% of the world's cereals half of the world's uh, sunflower oil. You, When you go to the petrol station to fill up your tank, you will be thinking about the energy crisis. It all goes back to Ukraine. It is about all of us. And that is what we tried to do, is to say, stop what you're doing, stop, stop, put the, stop boiling the kettle, listen to what we're going to tell you this morning on the news or this evening on the news. I wonder if I could ask you, there is also resistance to journalism, isn't there? Uh, there is resistance to the BBC. I wonder, for both of you, how that plays out as something you factor in to everyday life. You know, when people talk about fake news, when people talk about don't trust the BBC, and you are out there trying to capture these stories in that absolute reality as fairly as you can, because that is the point of your job. How does that make you feel? It's upsetting when people don't understand the value of the BBC for me specifically because I came from a country where there was no media there was no book there weren't there was no music there were no literature so when I came and and that's how I came to the BBC because growing up in Afghanistan under the first Taliban regime we didn't have anything and the only thing we did have was the BBC radio the Afghan service of the BBC radio and I was listening to that so my interest in journalism started and now that I'm here and, and I work and I see the organization from, from the inside and what we do and the lens we go to to tell a story and to, to tell it in a, in a fair, impartial way. And then I hear these comments. It's really upsetting. And I also, it's, it makes me feel like people don't understand what they're talking about. You have no idea what it means to have a free press, what it means to have democracy, what it means to sit in a place like this with each other and tell stories and talk about stories and talk about the little details. So to me, it's very upsetting. Let's clap for Sana. <laughs> in front of you, and of course for, for those who are listening who can't, sadly can't be with us today, you can't see it, but for those of you who are sitting with us under this, this wonderful tent, you see the arc of the changing face of the BBC. I was in, I was, as Sana said, I lived in Kabul in 1988-89, which was the dying days of the Cold War, when Soviet troops were pulling out of Afghanistan, ending a decade-long uh, occupation, and one of the many wars of, of Afghanistan. It was a time where I would send my telephone dispatches. There were only three telephone lines out of Afghanistan then. One through, one went through Moscow. One went through, but one went through Glasgow for some other, re- for some strange reason. I used to get to Christmas cards in the Glasgow telephone exchange. But when the telephones didn't work, I used to put them out 
on telex machine. And probably, did anyone here remember the telex machines? Yeah, see, this is, okay, good. We're on the same page. I but it was also a time, it. see, this is, but it was a time that the BBC's Pashtu and Dari services were listened to by 95% of the population of Afghanistan. And it was said at the time that in the early evening when the Pashtu radio news and the Dari radio news came on, the front lines fell silent. The guns no longer fired as the warring parties listened to the BBC to find out who was winning that day. That was the BBC then. Fast forward to where we are now and meet Sana Safi, the main presenter of BBC Pashtu television, and she is now the face of the BBC. And the very same Taliban still listen to us. The yeah. very same warring sides still listen to us, and they believe in the power of the BBC, in the power that the BBC is there for a reason. They, they, they're impartial, they're trustworthy they check their news with us uh, which is which is surprising because here at home there are so many views about the bbc or any free media right it's so yeah. polarizing but in countries where there's need people really believe in what the bbc is is doing and and stands for have you encountered more resistant more resistance in recent years or do you feel like there's always been this level of resistance is this something that's changed do you resistance think to resistance to journalism and resistance to the bbc the dazzling changes in technology have meant that we live in what is a world for journalism which is the best of times and the worst of times is that never have we had so much information literally at our fingertips in our pockets but never have we had so much misinformation misunderstanding and manipulation. I can see a lot of people nodding in the audience, for those of you who are listening to us at, at home or wherever you're listening. And people, you know, we have this this, this saying that you, you're everyone is entitled, entitled to their own opinions, but we should not be entitled to our own facts. And yet, people do have their own sense of what, the, who, what, when, where, why. I often say that if for journalists to go to journalism school, and it's, it was ever thus, they learn about the five W's. Who, when, what, where, why. The facts, ground zero of our journalism. But in our time, there is now six W's. Who, what, when, where, why, what the... F- <laughs> Is that on the syllabus, Lisa, yes, or have yes, you just yes. made that up? <laughs> I say there's a seventh one, too, and the seventh one is the secret of good journalism. Shall I share the secret? Yes, please. Who, what, when, where, why. There's the sixth one, which I should mention again. The seventh W is wow. In order for make to ensure that people do not turn the dial shut off the TV set, shut off the phone, turn away. We have to give the wow in journalism. We have to convince you that you want to listen or watch us or read us, but you need to listen, watch, or read us. Sometimes it's said that the people who make the news 
make it for other people who make the news, for all of us news junkies. If we had had this conversation two years ago, I would have said that journalism is in an existential crisis. We are fighting for the future of journalism. We still are. But I'd like to think, and I think we have seen evidence, that the Ukraine war has reminded all of us that we do need to have journalists on the ground. We need the light to shine in the in dark places. And in Ukraine today are some of the darkest places that are unfolding now on the face of the earth. There are many, of course, but this is it. And I think even in the BBC, when we were out in Ukraine working with my colleagues, we were fighting to tell the story. But some of us felt we were also fighting for the license fee to say, listen, we're just journalists. We're just trying to do our jobs, to get as close as we can to the truth as often as we can. All we can keep doing is doing what we do, and that is asking questions. Can I, can I add a... I'm now going to add another W, I think. Um, I just want to add a, a question to you both, and we must let you go, Sana. But if we were to add another W, and it were to be warmth... And one of the, the reason I say that is that we think of facts and we think of really good journalism as impartial. You do, however, to get people to tell their stories, need to make a human connection with them. You need to engage emotionally as well as intellectually, don't you? And you need to have a warmth of actually wanting to talk to another person. You can't be chilly about that, can you? It's a very good W. What do you think? You're part of the W Club. Great. Love it. (laughs) And it's vital. The warmth is really vital. Because if you don't connect with people, how can you make them to change their minds about the alternative reality they're living in, right? So the warmth is really important. And I think social media has really increased our challenge and also the optimization of news in some sense. Um, Everything has become so automatic and robotic. That's why we need journalists to tell stories in a human way to connect with people to tell them what really is happening and why it's happening, Mm. to make sense of a world that is increasingly becoming really polarized, really troubled, really divisive. Mm. And it's not just, I think, conflict zones that need media and free press and free BBC and impartial independent and and, uh, everything that stands the BBC stands for. It's countries like the UK. You need it to, to keep your democracy that you have. It's not something that, you know, democracy is not something that you have and you will always have, but you have to have it. And it's through the BBC or organizations like the BBC that you can keep the brilliant things that you enjoy, um, but you will continue to have it. So on that note, I will leave now. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't thank you enough, can so we? to see you. Thank you, thank thank you so, so much. Before you go, just tell us once again the name of your documentary. It's Afghanistan and Me, and it's available on the BBC World Service website and on the BBC Sounds. I think we'll all be listening to that. Thank you so much, Sana. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Utterly delighted to introduce, I think we can call her the legendary documentarian, if I may, um, Norma Percy. Thank you so much for coming to join us, Norma. And Norma has also done many wonderful things for the BBC as well, and she is hugely responsible for a number of incredible documentaries over the past 30, 40 years documentaries on Europe, inside Europe, um, inside Obama's White House on Russia, Iraq, Iran, Yugoslavia, um, Israel-Palestine. So really, if I suppose if Lise is responsible for writing the first draft of history, I guess Norm is responsible for the second and maybe the third as well. And I thought it would be very interesting to, to talk about those different approaches to storytelling. Um, what, you know, what draws you to, to, to that first draft and what draws you to the second one? It's amazing because <laughs> we met at more or less the same time. I mean, my first big documentary was 89. Unlike the rest of you, I appear behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be a bit more tolerant. Of me. May I just say to you that in the dictionary of journalism, there is a word, a concept, which is, which is, which is Norma Percy. There is a Norma Percy documentary. And I'm not saying that just to flatter her. When I first met Norma Percy, it was in, 19, in the 1990s in my neighborhood in Jerusalem, where I was living at the time. And already she was a legend because she had, I heard, it was whispered in the streets of Jerusalem 
that this British documentary, a very feisty lady called Norma Percy, had convinced King Hussein of Jordan to do an interview, not once, not twice, but three times. And in fact, Norma Percy insisted to all of the good and the great, if you want to be in my documentary, we need to see you three times. Right, Norma? Yeah. (laughs) That's true. But Norma, what did you do to persuade people to do that? Hmm. Write a lot of letters. (laughs) Ask a lot of questions. And don't go away until they do. With King Hussein, what she didn't tell you, the third time, as we went into the palace, he was seeing us before he talked to Ehud Barak. And we had a very limited time. Israeli Um, Prime Minister at the time. uh, This was at the time of rapprochement between... uh, And we drove in with great pomp through the gates of the palace. And just as I was about to get out, I said, oh my God, I... I left my questions behind at the hotel. <laughs> so it almost didn't happen, the final interview. Uh, but he, he was wonderful. Anyway, well, I started in the House of Commons, and I developed a great fascination about how big political decisions are made. Uh, I mean, what I worked for a backbench MP, and... Uh, I discovered that what the House of Commons is, I mean, the decisions are taken, government at the top, but being in the House of Commons is a wonderful window on discovering how they happen. While I was doing this, I was approached by Brian Lapping, who had been asked to make a big series about what was wrong with Parliament and hired me as a researcher. And I discovered that television was an even better way of finding out how big decisions are made. Politicians need television so that they're willing to make an effort and tell you things that they wouldn't anyway. But our first decision, our first big series about what was wrong with Parliament, was to cover one clause of a bill and look at how it was made through the House of Commons. Um, But we discovered that it could only be a little decision. This was about making a director general of fair trading and defining his powers. And MPs would give you access to how it was made. But the really big decisions, you can't be a fly on the wall watching it being made because it's much too sensitive. And the kind of things that um, Lise finds out that are going to be published tomorrow can only go that far. The kind of things that fly on the wall documentaries can only that far. The only way to be able to find out what happened is to go afterwards, after the decision is finished. And when it's finished, is a difficult thing to decide and go to the people who made it. So what, what we established was, well, we want to bring the viewer inside the room when the big decisions are made. So to do this, we only talk to the politicians, the people who who were in the room, their, their assistants who were told afterwards, no good. It has to be the presidents and the prime ministers. But they don't let you in very often. So and, you, and you need to get them in confessional mode as well, don't you? It's not just no, no good just having well, their time. You need to get them when they're prepared to reflect. Timing and is everything. Our first series was End of Empire, and we went, we went, to find out how 
the British flag came down in each of the colonies, India, Cyprus, African colonies. But when the flag comes down, that's great. I mean, that's the moment the war is over. The police chiefs are all ex-terrorists and everybody wants to talk to them. And uh, that, was, that one was easy. But we moved on to more current decisions. Uh, and um, our first one was uh, the Second Russian Revolution how Gorbachev came to power. And we absolutely, this is sheer luck, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but but this was in the, uh, Gorbachev was just coming to the end and he had brought in the policy of glasnost, openness. So it went from the Soviet Union. When I approached my first Politburo member, I said to them, tell me about the night Gorbachev was selected. You know, Tell me about how you told your wife that evening and the look of such complete horror across their face about telling their wife what had happened in Politburo that it, I didn't get anywhere at all uh, but but you know because they were I, with their girlfriend not their wife <laughs> that's probably a better idea particularly with Soviet politicians but but, but we were really lucky because Glasnost openness took part and as it as they believed in Gorbachev's openness. They began to think, oh, well, they, they had no rules the way uh, conventional Western politicians have, so they didn't know where to stop. And they also thought you had to tell the truth to the BBC. Uh, <laughs> and so we got them tell, telling us things that Western politicians would never tell. And it, it established our name. Because when the kind of decisions we go to, like, like selecting a leader or um, decision to go to war, these are the biggest moments of people's lives. And they, I mean, they, they, want to, they remember them and they want to tell you. And when a certain amount of time has passed, where they're not quite so sensitive, they will tell you. Have you ever been really taken aback by the preparedness of any particular politician to actually confess to you? you know, have they ever given you more than you'd ever expected any any time? Oh, or sometimes more, sometimes less. Anything you can tell us? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we have a, a, our other trick is it's a multi-sided approach. We go to both sides. So... Well, I suppose that, that, that's an interesting thing to focus on, isn't it? Because it's so much of what you do, you know, we see and we hear you, Lise, but of course it's about the team behind you, isn't it? Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about how that all comes together? Yes, but I, but I will pick up on your, 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 your point about... There's a saying that was ever thus in journalism that we write the first rough draft of history. And sometimes it is very rough. And, in, and of course, now in the age not just of 24-hour television, but, you know, nanoseconds of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever it is of the time, there is this thing, just get it out, get it out, you know, without saying any names. I mean, some broadcasters have the expression, never wrong for long, uh, the story that's too good to check. At the BBC, because we are... a public broadcaster and we do feel that that you know it's it's all of you who own the BBC so we feel a certain obligation 
even though we're accused of taking sides, we do feel the obligation to tell all sides. But there's such a pressure now. So, for example, if the, to use the example that you're having Norma and I here, so I would be reporting in Ukraine on February 24th, what did President Zelensky say on the Thursday when Russian forces rolled across the border? On Monday, when President Putin gave his address, which set out his, his view that Ukraine did not have the right to exist as a country. You know, our Moscow correspondent would report that. We report it as it happens in the rooms where it happens. But Norma will come along a year later and say to President Zelensky, well, okay, when you said this, when, you, when your wife woke you up that morning and said, we hear, I'm hearing explosions, what did you think that morning? And then she'll go to President Putin and saying, what were you thinking when you saw the images of the first Russian tanks going across the border? And then what she also does would be that she'd go to President Zelensky, and President Zelensky would say, well, I tried to talk to President Putin, but he wouldn't take the call. Then President Putin would tell her in the preparatory interviews, but I said this to President Zelensky, and she'll go, oh, President Zelensky didn't tell me that. So she'd go back to President Zelensky a second time and say, how come you didn't tell me what President Putin... So Norma will try to put together all of the conversations in the room where it happened to give us a fuller and a more personal account of the war. Back to what I said earlier, that ultimately these political stories, complex and consequential, are human stories. It's about the fears and the the dreams, the mistakes of leaders, isn't it? And the leaders' interaction. I love the one about Yitzhak Rabin and and the former president of Israel and the, the former prime minister of Israel and King Hussein of Jordan going out to have cigarettes together because they love smoking. And she has that story as well. So those little details that make us recognize in ourselves the stories that make the headlines. It must be for both of you too about having an ear for when somebody is not being entirely honest. They may not be being entirely honest with themselves because we always tell stories in a way that serves us best. And this must be even truer during a sort of life or death conflict. How do you develop that instinct for knowing when you're actually hearing something that's true? That's why you need time. You need, you need, we go off the record for people first and get their stories and put them together. And what you look for is when things fit. We definitely don't make our interviewees liars. Yes, yes. Uh, because we build up our programs of bits of what the interviewees tell you so that you have to believe what people are saying. But if you get them before, you put their stories together and you get the places where they fit. If one person says something wildly out, first of all, you assess them. I mean, who who would remember best? Who was it, who is it more important to? But you choose what you think remembers best, but you, you put together the bits that fit together. And so, for example, someone will say, um, I opened the meeting and I made a long speech and people were riveted. They said nothing. They just listened. Someone else would say, he opened the meeting. He made a long speech. He droned on and on. We were stupefied, and we said nothing. So it's they made a speech. It was a long speech, and and people were quiet. You know. So you pick the bits that fit together, and you leave the other bits on the cutting room floor. 
I must, must, must. This, this is a great British excuse. I'm a Canadian, and I love this British excuse. We must, which means, of course, you will never do it, but we must. I must answer your question. You must. Please let me share with you the great injustice of journalism, which, of course, it's all about fighting for justice. There's a great injustice, and that is that the faces and the names are best known to those who watch and listen to the BBC. But the faces and the names that you recognize are only the front of a huge operation, without whom none of us, enormous, enormous, enormous behind the camera, not in front of the camera, the satellite engineers, the, t- the camera people, the people who answer the telephones, the people who do the researchers, the producers, who often do far more than the person whose faces and names that you recognize. And in Ukraine, and because of this injustice in journalism, I'll use the example of Ukraine, I kept getting messages and requests, oh, Lise, could you do an interview for this profile section of this newspaper? Could you do an interview? And I would say, listen, I will only agree to do this profile if I can also tell you about the other people who work with me, because if those people who work with me, the people who put up the satellite, the people who get the, the, who do the camera, whatever, I would not be on air. If the person who didn't answer the telephones in London every day I called up at two minutes to eight to do the 810 slot on the Today program, I would, you know, be calling from Kiev thinking, answer the phone, answer the phone, why aren't you answering the phone? And thinking, if they don't answer the phone, I'm not going to get through to the Today program. So without that person in London, it's called lock. So during Ukraine war, I called them lovely lock. Hello, good morning, lovely lock. And sometimes they said, good morning, lovely Lise. And um, they were just saying that to be nice. So without these people, and let me just tell you one story, because when everyone was saying, oh, why are you staying in Ukraine? Get out of there. It's so dangerous. The Russians are coming. My goodness. There was a sense of foreboding. I knew why I wanted to stay. First of all, I didn't believe the danger was imminent. I believe we had a good team. We had a supply line set up. There would be water. There would be food. We had a bunker, two floors underground. Even if the Russians came to the center of Ukraine, we would be safe. And my job is to tell this to have my little niche. There were so many storytellers, not just the BBC. The world's media had descended on Ukraine. So I had my little niche to take care of to tell these stories. But what about the people behind me? Why were they staying? And my, who's calling? It's the director general of the BBC? I was it. So I said to my, to my, to the person who was in charge, Kate Peters, who's a Russian speaker, she's our Moscow bureau editor. I said, Kate, why do you want to stay here in Kiev? Well, you know, what keeps you here? She said, Lise, I think of my grandmother. In the Second World War, my grandmother was the mayor of East Dagenham. And you can imagine at that time how many women mayors there were. And she asked, when the, when the bombs started falling during the Blitz, she said to the four Dagenham, I can't be a mayor sitting in my office or in my home. I have to be out with the people. Could you please refurbish one of your trucks into a t- mobile tea, tea truck? Put an urn of, coffee, of tea and coffee in there, and I'm going to go and visit the people of East Dagenham. That was her grandmother. And fast forward to 2022, Kate Peters was taking care of the tea, the coffee, the broadcasting for all of us. So that's why she was staying in Kiev. So I said to one of the British newspapers, I said, right, you want to hear about my story? I'm going to tell you about Kate Peters' story. Because without Kate Peters' story and the satellite engineer who said, I want to be here with my friends, and the cameraman who said, I want to be like Brian Barron, who stayed in Saigon, they all connecting the dots. If you don't connect the dots, if you don't 
pull the threads together, you don't have the BBC. So please, when you hear my voice or name or any of my colleagues, remember, there is a cast of people behind them. And say hello to them too. <laughs> In reporting from Ukraine, there's a tent, and they now give credit to the cameraman who is with them as well. And that's a and wonderful, camera women. wonderful And the, um, the translators. Yes. In every area that you've been, in, in, including talking about the, the book we were talking about, without the translators, we don't understand each it's other. Local journalists. This is other, I'm telling you all our secrets. Um, you know, we have this F word. Am I allowed to say the F word? Say whatever you like. Okay. I think so. The F word. I almost use the F word. And I'm almost going to use the F word again. Fixers. Fixers. Now, fixers sound like something between a car mechanic and a crook. But journalists from world's capitals call up Ukraine and said, Hi, I'm looking for a fixer to help me. Now, this fixer is often a journalist, a journalist who has their own TV program, a major documentary maker, and they're being asked by Western journalists to be their fixer. You know, we would never call people who work in our newsrooms, if someone worked with you, a researcher, local producer, but somehow when we go outside of our capitals, we call them fixers. They are journalists. Okay, there are occasionally sometimes you go with your driver and your driver says, oh, I know my uncle, he can help us get in. My uncle happens to be the president or the prime minister. That, you know, she's nodding. <laughs> she said many drivers who say, Norma. My son knows the president. He can get you an interview. But mostly, we're working with journalists without whom we would be unable to do our work. They are our eyes and ears, and we have to treat them with respect. Because, again, without them, if I didn't have Ukrainian colleagues and Russians, other Russian-speaking colleagues, none of us would be able to leave the building. We're going to ask our audience to join in now. Lucy, my colleague, is going to make that possible by running around this tent. Who would like to start us off? Yes, there's a gentleman there. Andrew from Manchester. I'd just like to ask the whole panel, really. I'm actually more interested in what the Times people have to say because I think most people in this room, most people probably in the country, believe in the BBC absolutely massively. But when we've got a right-wing media who seem to be against the BBC, how do the people who work for right-wing media think about that? Well, we're the Times Literary Supplement, yeah, we're not which the is time. not the Times. <laughs> it is a completely different publication, and we are... Impartial, I would say. Criticism is our business, really. Literary criticism. So I don't think we're a right-wing paper. I, I'm, I'm not just saying that in a kind of mealy-mouths, weaselly way. We are, we are different from the Times. And I, I don't feel qualified to talk about the Times, I'm afraid. Yes, I always say... I'm a freelance and I write book reviews. So, you know, that is basically my job. But I take your point very, very much. You know, things are shaped to agendas. We know this, don't we? We, know, we all can see it. And, and I, do, I do think it's completely fair enough to say we, we have a, right, a right-wing media bias in this country. And I think it, the, the attack on the BBC in recent years is deplorable, in my opinion. The attacks on the BBC are deplorable because I said it's not doesn't just belong to me or to Sana. It belongs to all of us. It is a public broadcaster. But criticism is good. Attacks are not good, but constructive criticism is good. Again, we say in, in our profession that we are only as good 
as our next story. We have to get better. Every day we get every day we get up, we have to continue to fight in the in, in our case, fight to be a better BBC. I'm sure Norma as well would agree that you just you cannot take it for granted that people want to see or watch or read us. Maybe Norma can, but we, we do have to fight. So we welcome, we welcome criticism to get better. But criticism for the sake of criticism is destructive, demoralizing, difficult to deal with, and dangerous sometimes, and dangerous. We don't claim to be objective. We claim to be multi-sided, and multi-sided of the people involved with taking the decisions. And one of my worst problems was the BBC would say, not enough women in your program. Well, I mean, it's not my fault. I mean, the people who are at the top table are, are the only ones who are going to talk about that decision. And if it's not me who doesn't put enough women in the top table. And so, so the, the answer to that is to get more uh, women in, as top decision makers and not to find, find somebody who doesn't belong there and put it in. So, I mean, it's, it's a... It's a difficult and complicated business. You want to hear everyone involved who was really involved and not bring in people who are irrelevant that, that make the facts unclear. Thank you. Should we have another question? Yes. I hadn't heard about the book till today, so forgive me if I get the title wrong, but my pen is... The wing of a bird, yes. Okay, so often with short stories, I find um, I'm often taking away a series of different concepts. Um, but when you were speaking about it today, it seemed images were the big things that stuck in your head. The uh, red shoes, uh, red ring, and um, a journalist going to work whilst everything's happening. Do you think the main takeaway from those series of uh, short stories was those images that are emblazoned in your mind. And do you think that's a good lens to bring when you're watching the news? So instead of just seeing these horrific images which rend our hearts, but actually thinking of the people a few doors down making a cup of tea, putting their makeup on and having to face another day in those countries. This is a very good question. Uh, this, one of the, I think one of the best kinds of journalism, and I think Norma would agree with me, is the power of what seem to be small stories to tell a much bigger story. And you you very helpfully reminded us that in discussing the book of short stories, yes, we focused on the details because these are stories. This is meant to be literature. And literature is about the details, the, the weapon warmth of, of, of daily the warp and warp of daily life. But in the, embedded in each of those small stories, if we can call them that, is a much bigger issue, a much bigger story. And in the case of Afghanistan, it's a story of misogyny. It's a story about oppression. It's a story about the strength of women, despite all of the countervailing impressions. It's about, there are much bigger, in each story, there is a much bigger issue as well. Sadly, some of them are very troubling stories, but there are also stories which make your heart sore because they're also about the fight for freedom of young girls for an education. So thank you. You, you helped us finish what our, our, our explanation of what literature and fiction, the power of fiction, not just to delight us in terms of stories, but also to inform us. Thank you. I think we've got time for one really, really quick question. Hello, uh, my name's Lynn, and I'd like to ask you all, as you're reporting on really 
dire human situations, how do you maintain your resilience to keep going back to these really troubled places? Um, I always say it's it's not just um, a cliche or something to make us all feel better about ourselves and the world. That you know, and I think there's a scientific basis for it. That in the darkest of times, that when you see the light, the light burns the brightest and without exception in every war and conflict disaster I've covered that in these darkest of times you sometimes see the brightest of moments look at the Ukraine war that this tragedy of our time the devastation the deprivation that we're seeing in the battlefields across Ukraine we are also seeing inspiring stories of Ukrainians standing up, soldiers going to front lines, civilians in all walks of life taking a stand, wanting to, to play some role, a surge of patriotism, a country coming together, and people coming together beyond Ukraine's borders. We are seeing light in this very darkest of time. And it's, you know, it it's so overwhelming at times when you go to war zones and you'll go to villages at the end of nowhere people at the the, the most the, the at moments of unfathomable grief they will open their hearts and homes and offer you a cup of tea a piece of bread that when in a war where people are losing so much the last thing they lose is their humanity their sense of self the rituals that make them who there are and and their openness and kindness to strangers. I and many of my I always say without kindness there would be no journalism. So that's that is what keeps us going. And very briefly, in a, for for someone like me as a broadcaster, you have to have someone who you producer, a camera person. Although we do sometimes operate as a single person now because technology allows us to do that. But without exception, if we're working in Syria, we work with the Syrian. If we're working in Afghanistan, we work with Afghans. And whatever, whatever grief or sadness or upset that we feel, it is no measure compared to those who's, who are not just reporting what is happening. They are reporting what is happening in their own lives, the future of their own families. And somehow it makes you, it has to make you stronger. You have to be stronger for those who are with you, who are, whose emotions are much deeper, much more consequential than anything that we will feel. And somehow that gives you strength, that you're there working together and have to stand together. And so that I find as well is something which it helps you cope with the moment, but also reminds you that we are the ones who can leave. There are those who have to stay. Lise, thank you so much. It has been so extraordinary to hear you talking and to you too, Norma. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you to you, our thank audience. You. Thank you so much for coming. I'm, I'm sad to say that's all we have time for. Um, hope you enjoyed this podcast. We've certainly loved this event. I'm going to give a small shout out to a man who's been in my eye line throughout this. And he's, I think he knows me. He's taken it off now because the sun's uh, gone in. But he's been shading his head from sunburn and sunstroke with a copy of the TLS. And we like to be useful in ways that are beyond mind expanding, but actually head protecting. So thank you very much. And our sound engineer behind us. Our wonderful sound engineer. Thank you so much to you all from Toby, Lucy and me. Goodbye. And our thanks again to Lise and Norma. Thank you.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.